Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Michael Nielsen of Y Combinator. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Eric. How do you sort of define your career identity when someone comes up to you uh, and wants to know more about sort of what thread ties your your career together? What do you tell them? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what I tell them. Depends on the person. My identity has has changed. I started out as a theoretical physicist and and worked on quantum computing for a, a long time. I started on that uh, in the early '90s. Really, what ties almost all of my interests together is an interest in tools for thought. So the, the kinds of technologies that we've built that change how people can think. And if you look closely at any of my interests, uh, that's, that's always really where they're coming from. Let's talk about YC research and sort of how you see, I guess, the role of a, a research institution, how it differs from perhaps uh, more academic institutions or how it differs from, you know, YC proper. We we're talking a little bit about the difference with research and, and startups. Why don't you un- unpack a little bit there? Okay. So, I mean, YC Research is a, it's a separate organization. It's a, a not-for-profit. We're doing, I guess, a whole, whole bunch of different things, which actually I mostly don't know very much about, or I, I know uh, probably less than some people who just you know, read all the, read the news, things like the universal basic income and things like that. I, I follow along with interest, but they're not my expertise. As to how it's different from a conventional research institution, there's a lot of things. The one that comes to mind for me is that, in fact, many of the researchers have had unusual uh, backgrounds. A lot of them have a deep background in art or they have a deep background in engineering. They don't necessarily have PhDs. Maybe a good example is uh, Dynamic Land over in uh, uh, Oakland. So this was uh, part of uh, YC uh, research for a long time. I'm not sure actually what the relationship is right now. A lot of the people there, you know, they're working on building an entirely new type of computer, but it's not a team of PhD computer scientists. It's a team of people with all kinds of different uh, backgrounds, backgrounds in music, backgrounds in art, backgrounds focused on making things, but also this kind of deeply reflective process where they're focused on fundamental questions about what a computer should be, what the right relationship between human beings and computers are. Uh, and not directly focused on product development. Right. And what is your focus within YC Research and how has that evolved over time? So I'm a research fellow, which means I set my own independent research agenda. How has it evolved over time? What's well, evolved? You know, what, what do I find interesting at, 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 at any given time? Right at the moment, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about memory and thinking about tools to augment uh, human memory. Sort of a funny fact is that psychologists have known for more than a century how to essentially guarantee that you remember anything. And even though they understand the process, we haven't built systems to take advantage of this. In fact, even in sort of in a a really ridiculous way, even things like schools don't take advantage of any of this work uh, or they take advantage of it in at most very weak uh, kinds of ways. About the only industry that I think has really taken it seriously at all is in some sense the advertising industry who understand the value of repetition. Yeah. So 
let's talk about memory. I have a very specific use case for memory, very niche and specific use case for memory, which is freestyle rap. I see uh, I'm at a freestyle rap event. I see people incorporate a very clever rhyme or a very clever phrase. I'm like, man, I wish I could just store that in my memory. Like, stop everybody. <laughs> Let me write that down. Let me store it in. And so Anki can be very helpful for things like that. Um, what sort of set you on the path to really dig deep into memory? And you've, you've written a bit about when you unpack some of the, the writing um, or some of the takeaways that you've had from your exploration to how to use memory devices like, like Anki. I guess at first it was, you know, it was just experiment and sort of, sort of personal experimentation. I didn't really, I didn't certainly didn't regard it as part of my job at all. It was more just sort of a side interest. And I read. What were you trying to remember? Well, the first few times. So basically I read a little bit online from people like Gwen and, and a few others, uh, some accounts of this spaced repetition testing idea. And then dug into a little bit of the the history, the psychologists who'd worked on it going back to the 1800s. It was just, it was interesting to see people claim that they could remember thousands of things. I didn't think too much of it. Uh, I experimented a bit, uh, failed to turn it into a habit, thought that's interesting and uh, forgot about it. I came back once or twice after friends expressed great enthusiasm, failed again. And what made me start to take it a little bit more seriously, it was just sort of idle curiosity. Uh, for some reason, I had to learn, uh, I decided at some point that I needed to understand the Unix command line quite a bit better. I think I'd sort of just picked up bits and pieces over the years, and then I had some project where I knew I was going to need to do a whole heap of it. And essentially as a joke for myself, I thought, I wonder if I can use these spaced repetition practices to essentially memorize sort of an entire book on about the Unix command line. A, a short book, it was one of the uh, O'Reilly pocket guides, and I found that amusing. I started to try it, and I realized that, in fact, it would be possible. Very quickly, I realized it would be possible. Uh, in the event, I didn't memorize the whole thing, but I, I memorized certainly most of the bits that, that I would could potentially find useful. Indeed, it turned out to make my experience of the command line much uh, more pleasant. Uh, so that was really sort of the first striking uh, experience. It made me start to think, uh, you know, why are these systems not everywhere? Uh, and also then just looking at the system and realizing that, you know, it had a lot of problems with it as well. So I, I started thinking about uh, memory a little bit more seriously then. Uh, there's also some, I think, really interesting results coming from psychologists, sort of a whole separate line, which is not really directly to do with these kind of ideas of how to memorize, but rather the role that memory plays in the development of deep expertise. So people like Herb Simon uh, and uh, Anders Ericsson, going back to the 1960s and 1970s, started to study seriously the question of what makes somebody actually an expert. And it seems like in a whole lot of different cases, just an incredibly important part of it is uh, having an just an, an amazing number of pieces of expertise memorized and kind of ready to go at the right triggers. So people will recognize the right patterns. I guess uh, Simon in particular uh, famously studied chess players and was able to deduce the chess players don't really, or master chess players don't see chess boards the, the same way a novice does at all. Rather than seeing individual chess pieces, they see chunked patterns. So they will recognize particular combinations of pieces uh, and that's the way they, they think. Uh, they estimated that on the order of 25 to 100,000 uh, of these chunks were committed to a master chess player's uh, memory. Mostly unconscious. Like they're not thinking, oh, that's, you know, 
such and such a type. I mean, there's, there's a little bit of that, uh, but they're not, not thinking in that way. And starting to read into that literature uh, and understand that there seem to be some deep connection between memory and sort of what we think of as more sophisticated types of expertise was also very motivating to, to start right. to think a little bit more about this. So if I wanted to perhaps become a, I'm a beginner chess player now, but if I wanted to become an expert quickly, perhaps what I might do is memorize most famous openings or closings and in a very deliberate way? Not being a chess player, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, it's a good question. I mean, the way in which, of course, master chess players do do a whole lot of just you know memorization of that they also do a huge amount of of analysis though um you know they'll find particular uh, decisive you know particularly important positions and study what's going on it seems though to some extent it's what's the chunks are emerging out of that process of study so it's not just uh, uh memorization uh in sort of in what you might think of as as that you know passive mode are hard you know this particular combination of pieces means whatever there's this active process of analysis the same is pretty much true of you know i have much more experience as a theoretical physicist so reading theoretical physics and reading mathematics and there's this strange thing you go into a new part of it and you sort of at first you read papers very slowly and then this funny thing starts to happen you're not really conscious of you can start to look at a new paper and you just you sort of see oh you know the key result must be over here and you know yeah i can ignore most of this uh, analysis but you know that paragraph you know that's clearly very important and you're not really conscious of what's going on there's some kind of pattern matching which is going on you've internalized the bits that say uh, oh this is all business as usual doesn't matter doesn't matter doesn't matter you know, those two paragraphs contain the essential argument, the idea of the paper. And all this, is, of course, is going on uh, subconsciously, which makes it a little unsatisfying, but it, it's repeatedly the case in my experience uh, that that's, you know, how you end up reading papers. Yeah. It is interesting to think about, as we, as we think about expertise, what, you know, areas of expertise are there sort of like low-hanging fruit or, or are more accessible uh, than others? For one, you know, crude example for me is, is I wanted to be an NBA player and basketball was a just no matter how hard I tried to like hack the system, I just, I wasn't going to be a great basketball player, you know, real limitations. Whereas with freestyle rap, I think there's a chance. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think there's an opportunity uh-huh. um, to hack the system or, or that it just, it's, it's more accessible in some way, or I've actually had better results. You know, in most things, so there's this famous rule that people love to dispute the 10,000 hours or 10 years or whatever rule. Regardless of what you think of it, you know, it's fundamentally an economic fact. There's nothing magical about, about those numbers except how it relates to sort of the availability of people's time. So if you pick something really classic, like becoming a great basketball player or becoming you know, a really good piano player or becoming a really good mathematician, where there's you know, zillions of people starting out, I mean, all that 10 years means is that's, that's how long it takes for a huge number of those people to drop out and you're left with the small number of people who can make a living as a professional piano player in the world. Programming is super interesting, uh, because it's always based on these platforms. And so, you know, along comes a new, uh, you know, programming platform and in whatever 2006 or 2008 or something, it's jQuery. And all of a sudden, the world's leading jQuery people all have six months experience in it. And then along comes, you know, React and then along comes whatever. You, you just sort of see this happening over and over again. A new platform emerges. There are these people doing amazing things with it. 
and they don't have 10,000 hours experience with it. They have 100 hours experience with it. I think it's it's just amazingly interesting fact about programming that it kind of violates uh, a whole lot of these these right. these rules because so much of the power is in the platform that you're using uh, that a lot of people with relatively sort of little experience can actually do quite yeah. remarkable things. I wonder if social media works in a similar way. Maybe it's only for the niche, but like, you know, you, you'd be good at Facebook, which is different than being good at Vine, which is different than being good at Instagram. It's different than being good at TikTok, Twitter, and these new platforms keep coming out and it enables sort of a new class of creators in some sense. You seem to thrive at Twitter. I enjoy Twitter, yeah. I get a lot of value out of it. I wonder about, you know, to what extent there's actually sort of generalizable skills. Like, are there people who are just very good at, at, at you know, mastering new social media platforms and not just because they spend way too much time on them, but they've actually got, you know, sort of interesting ways of thinking about them? It might just be absorption. You, if you're reflective and try a lot of things and are observant. Same as most things. Same as freestyle rap, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My next goal <laughs> is to learn how to freestyle rap in Spanish. <laughs> First, learn how to speak Spanish. <laughs> then, uh, and I wonder how how much I will cross over. Let me ask you a question, sure. Eric. Freestyle rap. What's the what's the bottleneck? What's the hardest thing? Oh, how great question! I think it's <laughs> great rhymes, <laughs> like great phrases and great rhymes. So I think people build their freestyle skill by doing it with people who are better than them, or you know, same level, and then basically subconsciously building sort of a rap dictionary or rhyme bank based on listening to other, like, oh, that's a good rhyme. Let me, and they just ingested it. They're just like this magnet for great rhymes. In guitar, there are scales. There's like, you know, these things that people fall back on and they use them back and forth. In rap, there is no sort of formal thing as scales, but people, I, sort of, I think, sort of create their own by having so much tr- training data, basically. Where's the training data for rhymes? How do people get data quicker um, to be able to ingest it, learn it, use it? Everyone starts from scratch more or less. And so you listen to a lot and you listen to other uh, people, but um, if you could somehow get the data of really good rhymes. It seems like freestyle rap and poetry, both any incredibly demanding media form like that, where, where every single word counts, Uh, you know, and and a word is like, that's a massive spend, so to speak. You know, if you're writing a book, a word, yeah, whatever. You can afford a few loose words here and there. But in those forms, you, there's, there's really none. That actually seems like it's probably, you know, those things are going to re- yield returns in almost every other form. Yeah. What well, is isn't, I mean, so, you notice I said freestyle rap, not rap, like, uh, not rap in the way that like Drake raps or anyone who writes music. The bottleneck there is just natural talent. <laughs> Where freestyle rap, the bar is pretty low. Like, cause freestyle rap is just, you're, imp- you're literally thinking off the top of your head. Um, and then you're coming up with, you know, storytelling in real time. And that's such a hard thing to do that to do it at a certain reasonable level of quality puts you like world class, <laughs> you know, it, where, compared to, I mean, poetry sort of anything that's a non-improvised poetry or rap that's non-improvised, you know, has a very, very high bar. And you know, the, I feel like that's more natural talent in some way. I suspect that. People who, you know, very good sort of slow poets, so to speak, you know, that, that that's also, you know, that they're storing a lot of patterns, which enable them to become really significantly better um, at improvising. They might, you know, have some sort of hang ups, which prevent them from doing that. I've certainly noticed that, you know, if, 
well, I think almost everybody does. You know, if you want to speak well in an improvisational fashion on a subject, yeah. you know, write an article which takes exactly. you a hundred hours to, to, to write first. You'll actually speak much, you know, uh, after the fact, you'll be able to improvise, uh, really significantly better. Totally. But of course, that's not really what's going on. It's just that you've, you've leveled up probably yeah. multiple times and you're thinking about it. Totally. Right. I mean, the same way that if you, you know, spent a hundred hours on, on this, article or, or series and then you sort of freestyle or improvise in a podcast you know it becomes a becomes a lot easier what do you use space repetition for today and what sort of non-obvious ways are you, are you using it or are you seeing other people use it that you're inspired by i actually when i started using it i mostly stayed separate from all the forums and whatever and i i didn't realize really for a long time i'm using it in a whole bunch of really strange ways i'm using it to do analysis of paintings i'm using it to analyze mathematical proofs i use it to memorize a whole bunch of like personal information these are apparently not standard ways they were sort of improvised uh, myself you know things i would like to do certainly i've done a fair amount of just taking pieces of mathematics that i want to understand really well absolutely apart so you know, taking a proof of some theorem that i'm interested in i think of it as disassembling it into the atoms trying to understand those as clearly as possible and then putting the whole thing back together um, really what you want is to get to a point where you understand the what might appear to be a very complicated proof as just a single idea that's kind of the the, the ultimate thing like what's the the if you were to phrase it in verbal terms, which is not how I end up doing it, but but in verbal terms, it's like, what's the one sentence explanation for why this has to be true? Now, usually, actually, there is no good verbal explanation. So that's not quite the right. That's not quite what I'm aiming for. Uh, but that's the gist. Like, I, w- I want the, you know, what's the, the one idea that really makes this tick? Uh, and everything else is just kind of, you know, it's all surroundings. So that's a a, a common uh, technique that's for things that i want to understand really really well where i end up having all of those facts committed to memory that's a really high price to uh, to pay on the other hand there's this i think of it as being able to see through the result it's funny a lot of pieces of mathematics you know you may know but they're still kind of cumbersome it's not your native language when i'm able to see through a result you know, I understand not just why it's true. I understand why it's true in nine different ways, and I can see connections to a whole bunch of different things. Right. That's what I'm aiming for through this through this process, and that really does require having it all in. You know, it's not enough to have it written down somewhere. No, I want it all in my head. Right. Um, I need to be able. I mean, ideally, I should just be able to walk along, uh, and and I, you know, I don't need paper and pencil or anything anymore. I can just carry uh, the whole line of thinking in my, in my head, and all the things that are most valuable to me, I can think about that way. Yeah. So you know, it's really invaluable in that sense for getting it sort of off paper and pencil or off yeah. my computer and into my head. Yeah, it is sort of funny how memory works. Like, I, you know, I major in economics, and there's a lot in my classes that I probably don't remember, whereas. You know, I know that the starting lineup for the Atlanta Hawks in 1997 was Mookie Blaylock, Stephen Smith, Tyron Corbin, Alan Henderson, and Takemi Mutombo. And that's storing up brain space in my head. And I haven't thought about it in years, but <laughs> I know every team. And I wasn't thinking when I was 10 years old that 20 years from now, I'm going <laughs> to, 25 years, I'm going to memorize this. But it's there for life. <laughs> it's just interesting what, what sticks. Uh-huh. Something I really enjoy, like if you watch, 
Good example. If you go into the, you know, search on the right thing on YouTube, you will find a very amusing video of LeBron James being asked by uh, some reporter, you know, after such and such happened in the game, what happened then? And you can see LeBron's, I'm guess I don't even know. I think they just lost the game. He was not in a good mood. And he kind of gave a slightly grumpy answer, but a great answer. He just answered the question, literally. <laughs> he said, he, he basically described the movements of everybody, of the ball, of exactly what happened for the next sort of couple of minutes. And then he just sort of looks out at the reporters and says, does that sound about right? And of course, they all just killed themselves laughing. Yeah. Um, he has apparently, you know, just an extraordinary memory. Yeah. And you, you, I'm a big tennis fan and you uh, listen to uh, tennis players talk about stuff. You'll hear, you know, Roger Federer will describe, you know, whatever, the 2008 Wimbledon final. And then he'll describe some point. You know, it was, you know, it was 30, 40 down in such and such a game and da, 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 da. And he remembers where the ball was and exactly what shot he and his opponent, uh, you know, did. Sort of, he basically has sort of a, almost a, sort of a, you know, a, a complete memory of, of, of what happened. I've heard, you know, Gary Kasparov has said, uh, you know, he remembered every, every single move he made in every chess game for multiple decades. What's going on there? Like, that sounds, at some level, it sounds useless, but I, I think that all that really says is that, that we have bad models of what it means to be an expert. Right. These people are amazingly expert at what they do. And presumably what's going on is that somehow they're able to, you know, these things are deeply meaningful to these, to these people. Um, and they've got all these kind of internal, you know, why is it going on? I don't know. I think it's just incredibly fascinating, though, that, yeah. that, 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 that this is the case, that, you know, somebody can remember a yeah. arm motion they made 15 years ago and yeah. what exactly they were thinking at the time. So, I don't know, that, that kind of thing, you dismissive about knowing the lineup for the Atlanta Hawks. Well, I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's actually connected to something really good about, yeah, yeah. about yourself. Yeah, it is funny. Tyler Cowan also, I, in my podcast with him, he sort of a therapy session where he was telling me that my, my time spent, you know, obsessing over basketball trivia was, <laughs> was potentially used widely, wisely. And that is a segue. Uh, Tyler is also says that he specializes as a generalist, which is unclear exactly what it means. He's <laughs> just really smart across a bunch of different things. How do you think about the tension in your own learning between going wide, going deep? What do you choose to become an expert in? What do you say? Hey, too many people are already expert at that. I don't need that. Or, hey, that's a foundational knowledge. I need that to learn other things. Um, or that's too niche or obscure. How do you think about that? One return to being a specialist is you acquire a whole lot of inherited political power. Basically, a whole heap of other people have already done the work required to establish what you're doing with funders, to establish it in the wider audience and, and whatnot. So that's a really interesting benefit. If you want to do pioneering intellectual work, Mostly that means doing something that doesn't yet have a name. So you lose a lot of those benefits. In actual fact, it may be really bad. The, the, sort of the really bad situation is when you don't know what you're doing, you don't know why you're doing it, and you can't explain it to anybody else. So if you're Alan Turing in the 1930s trying to explain why you know, you're inventing, or I guess what we now call the Turing machine, like you know, your story is just bizarre. He was motivated by you know, this really strange problem in the foundations of mathematics, which today sounds you know kind of com completely bizarre. Hilbert wanted to know whether or not there was an effective procedure for determining the truth, the truth or falsity of a mathematical statement, and Turing got interested in this problem and invented computing. 
actually, I've stated that in a relative, at least it's clear. I doubt it was even that clear to him. Maybe he was actually working on that particular problem. My guess is he was probably just sort of noodling around in that, that general area. You know, the work that, that interests me the most anyway tends to be work where it's not even yet clear what the narrative is going to be. Uh, so people find foundational new narratives. They really kind of, sh- you know, shape them sometimes over years or decades. Uh, and then eventually, you figure out what the field wants to be and it becomes something. I I started working on quantum computing when it was a few years old and (laughs) nobody was working on it. I got interested in open science at a time when that phrase barely existed. That tends to be what I find personally interesting. This isn't, it's not an intellectual choice. It's not a well-motivated choice. It's something about my personality. Uh, It's probably determined by, you know, when I was three or something. Right. One thing I have with my friend is a, and we message every day, but now we have a Google Doc uh, with anytime we're thinking of ideas. And that Google Doc has lowered the friction, lowered the bar of putting an idea out there. And then really sort of collectively thinking together. And even Twitter's, you know, although we use it to, to think out loud and to engage, uh, is too high of a bar. How do you decrease, like, I'm curious about that as a sort of technology thought, sort of a collective Google Doc that is, that we're all sort of, that the bar is just so much lower to to think out loud and thus build on other people's ideas? It's a good question. There's something funny about trust. Because I think often your best ideas or the most valuable ideas are things which seem very strange and hard to articulate at first. And you often, they may grow over days, weeks, months, years. And... So there's a fair bit of trust involved in sharing them in that kind of a way. There's probably only a relatively small group of people you will do that with. It's interesting what characteristics you need. You simultaneously want a person who will be very critical and very not critical, uh, which is pretty hard. I have a a friend who I think of as being like just amazing at, at this. I don't even know to what extent it's conscious, but he really has these two modes you can go into this kind of, you know, just wonderful exploratory mode where he just knows what it is to go towards sort of the most interesting part of anything. And then he'll stop and take stock. And, you know, you have this very good sort of critical analysis mode. And somehow, uh, you know, this combination of things is really good for, for turning ideas. Well, for... I think of it as almost watering ideas, you know, yeah. sort of the garden uh, metaphor. You just water them a little, you see if anything comes up, uh, you go away, you come back, you water them some more, uh, and hopefully over a few months or a few years, uh, yeah. some of them turn into beautiful trees. And yeah. Many of them, of course, turn into weeds or just die, but yeah. uh, that's okay. <laughs> and is, is Twitter a, like a garden for you? Or is, is that where you're... No, I think of Twitter as not really an online service at all. It's the online component of a much improved offline experience yeah so for me twitter is mostly one of its main reason one of its main purposes is simply uh to be able to meet remarkable people sort of offline and the fact that you know there are some good things i mean there are definitely some great things that that happen online as well but that's not principally how i think about it yeah let's go back to programmable oh yeah programmable matter there's this idea of what the right thing to call it is programmable matter is a pretty common term. I don't think it really captures it properly. It's this idea that, that somehow human beings 
we've never had good control over matter. For most of history, you know, we had very, very coarse control over it. We couldn't even get most of the elements. You know, it was a huge breakthrough to get iron. It was a huge breakthrough to get bronze. And then over the last century or so, we started to get kind of okay at chemistry. We're still basically terrible at it. Like, you know, what the drug companies do is they just employ a whole heap of chemists who just fabricate, you know, a huge number of different molecules and then they try and characterize them. Are they useful for anything? This is a terrible way of doing anything. But it's progress. We're almost at the point where we can start to reliably do manipulations at the say at the atomic level, not quite, but we're, you know, we can do things like spelling out IBM with xenon atoms and whatever. Okay. So what? It just means that I think we're just a few decades away from going through this really interesting transition where we go from having had almost no control of matter to having ha- having almost complete control of matter. Um, and when you have that almost com- complete control, it, you know, it's going to become programmable in all sorts of, sort of deep and, and, and interesting uh, ways. It's not just going to mean you know, that you can control where atoms go at any given time. It's going to mean that you can control energy flows. You can control all the different bulk uh, properties to some extent, things like how brittle is it, how hard is it, how ductile is it, how conductive is it, all those kinds of things. We're gradually going to expand how much control we have. Um, one of the most beautiful ideas I know is a whole set of ideas around uh, what's called topological phases that have been developed by physicists over the last few decades, particularly by a, a physicist named uh, Alexei Kataev at Caltech. And I think what, it, what it's pointing to, you know, we, we, we think of phases of matter as these, these things that, that, that we understand from, from childhood. We have liquids, we have gases, we have solids. Um, it's kind of incredible when you think about it. Why is it that all the different solids, um, you know, they're very similar uh, to one another. At the chemical level, you know, the piece of iron that I have, you know, isn't really all that similar to my table, but in fact, its properties in the world are, are really kind of, really kind of similar, much more similar than if they were, you know, say in the gas phase. And what physicists have understood over the last 20, 30 years is that this old fashioned picture of phases is really way too simple. We're starting to get a picture that says, oh no, there's actually, well, millions, potentially an infinite number of different phases of matter. We're gaining the ability to start to create these phases. They're all going to have very different properties at the, the macroscopic level, at the sort of level where we can interact with them. Um, you start to see this in things like uh, uh, Bose-Einstein condensation, uh, superconductivity, superfluids, these kinds of things, which were still in the early days of really understanding. But you start to move towards this sort of picture, which says, oh, you can engineer completely new phases of matter. You can start to talk, think about designing the properties that those phases uh, will, of matter will have and, and even programming them. So it would, you know, if, if we, you know, this is speculative, but we can certainly imagine a future in which we start to get really a, a completely changed relationship to matter. You know, all the, the, the things that we, we, we currently have, um, you know, will be seen as very special cases. Uh, we will have these much more elaborate uh, phases of matter with who knows what properties. That's a difficult set of ideas to, to, to describe, and it, it is still the very early days, but uh, I, I think that's a, a, just an incredibly interesting set of ideas. You see in startups, you have an idea that people often think is weird, and the question is, 
and you have some insight, but the question is, especially with the consumer thing, how long do you sort of keep pushing on this idea? And startups are able to get feedback, you know, relatively quick. Um, as to, hey, people don't want this. <laughs> and they go, okay, I, you know, I, I thought there was something here. And sometimes you keep pushing and, until really you get some validation. I guess I'm curious in science when you have an idea, when you give up on an idea, when you say, you know, how you get feedback on ideas, especially when they're weird. Yeah. Hard to know. In 1998, I saw Kip Thorne give a talk about LIGO, the gravitational wave uh, detector. And in the talk, he said, uh, we'll need a sensitivity of one part in 10 to the 22. In other words, you need to be able to detect changes in length of one part in 10 to the 22, which is just, I, I literally just laughed when I heard that and thought, well, good luck, maybe in 500 years. Actually, what I really thought was, if I was going to write a paper about this, I would write a paper containing a proof that it was impossible. And sure enough, you know, 20 years later, they released this paper. And in the abstract, they report a strain sensitivity of one part in 10 to the 22. They did it. Like, this is just, I mean, it is mind boggling that they were able to, to do it. And, you know, I mean, how, how can one, I forget what it is. It's like measuring the distance to the sun to an accuracy of one atom is kind of the, that's the right kind of ballpark. This, it should not be possible. So in some sense, you know, I mean, that's just such a huge judgment call that they were willing to take their ability to filter out sources of noise so incredibly seriously. My judgment would certainly have been, this is a bad idea. And obviously I was completely and utterly wrong. And I think Lego is like one, possibly the most amazing thing human beings have ever done. Uh, but uh, that's a hard call. And, and you know, that's a success. But there are tons of scientists who, you know, they make this judgment, oh, we should, you know, work over here and, and whatever. And 20 years later, sometimes they have nothing to show for it. Um, on the other hand, you know, the number of things that pay off is pretty high. They certainly determine the shape of the, the world. Yeah. And let's get into that a little bit. You, uh, a few months ago, you and Patrick Collison released a, uh, an article that talked about sort of the rate of scientific innovation. Why don't you sort of talk about first, what did you set out? Why did you set out to write that article? What were you trying to learn or show and then maybe unpack some of the conclusions that you found along the way? Where it comes from, I think, I think Patrick has a slightly different memory, but my memory is that, that, that on several occasions we argued about the rate of scientific progress. I had a slightly more optimistic view. He had a slightly more pessimistic view. And so we, you know, decided to, to try and figure it out. I think both of us had a strong conviction, which is borne out by what we found that there have been really enormous diminishing returns. So back in 1911, when Rutherford discovered uh, the nucleus of the atom, he wrote a paper with himself as author on it. And, of course, a few years ago, the Higgs boson was discovered. Uh, and, you know, you're talking about papers with a 1,000 authors. Just the scale of effort which is required has gone up enormously. And in many ways, it, it seems like a lot of sort of the, the results are, are getting significantly less interesting. So we wanted to see to what extent that was borne out. We formulated a whole bunch of different ways of approaching this problem. It's very hard to say what it means to get a unit of insight in science. Like that's a, you know, there's kind of a fundamental measurement problem. It's not like with GDP or something where, you know, you can, even that is, even that is hard to, to talk about. But in science, it's really difficult. How do you compare different types of discoveries? And so we found a, a bunch of proxy measures and, and tried to understand the picture. And the picture over the last century that we found was not too 
optimistic. It certainly suggests very strongly diminishing returns to effort. There's a bunch of, I, I believe that, I think. Yeah. Much more strongly than when we started the work. That we're in some form of secular stagnation? Yeah. Certainly in terms of, you know, there are people like Tyler Cowan and, and, and uh, Gordon and various other people who argue that this is also true economically, that, uh, you know, productivity growth has stagnated. I don't know exactly what I think about that. It seems to me that uh, how you measure productivity growth is, you know, it's extremely difficult. A lot of people work very hard on it. Uh, you, it is very difficult to actually measure. But in the case of science, I believe it's true. Uh, it's taking a lot more effort to get ideas of similar or lower lower quality. It's hard to beat, you know, Newton. Uh, yeah, the idea that the universe is governed by laws and that we have these regularities, that's... Uh, Pretty good for one guy. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of uh, economics, how should we think about science as sort of an unusual type of economic system or what sort of scarcities or scarcities exist within science? How, how should we think about that? Well, that's a huge question. Um, <laughs> one that I'm fond of, I guess, is yeah, certainly one scarcity is expert attention. If you have particular types of expertise, you know, it's a really frustrating thing as a scientist. Very often you know that whatever the problem is that you're currently struggling with, the right person could probably just solve it. Um, it's going to take you a month or six months, and the right person could just look at it and say, yeah, look, what you do is this. So there's some massive inefficiency there. I sort of think there's this market for you know, expert attention, and at the moment it's incredibly inefficient. Things like Stack Overflow and its various sort of, uh, you know, there are versions of it now, Math Overflow for mathematics, and there are other, other things like that. There's a physics stack exchange. Kind of address it a little bit. You know, they probably reduce that inefficiency by 1% or something, uh, but it's still an incredibly inefficient market. Yeah. Email, email actually, you know, reduced it really pretty substantially. God knows what Slack has done for it. Uh, it's probably reduced it in some ways and massively increased it in other ways. So if I mentioned for me that my bottleneck for freestyle rap is training data, what's the bottleneck collectively for scientific innovation or like? I think it really depends on, uh, different, uh, in different fields. You know, there's this replicability, re reproducibility crisis in social psychology. And I think one of the takeaways from this where so many results, fundamental results in the field, uh, there is now substantial doubt about whether they exist at all. You know, in that particular case, in that particular field, it really seems as though, you know, maybe, you know, we should just regard that field as starting over at this point. I've talked to people who work in adjacent fields and they say that they don't believe their own res results from their own papers before a certain date. It's not that they were, you know, people were being dishonest or, or engaging in bad behavior. It's that in fact, that, you know, what they thought were reliable methods for generating knowledge turned out not to be reliable. So there, you know, there's a whole bunch of practices which some people are starting to adopt, but those practices are not going to help. They're not going to help uh, somebody like me who's a theoretical physicist by training. They're not going to change theoretical physics very much, if at all. Um, fact which bugs me a lot, if you look at rankings of world universities, they don't change. So if you look at the Shanghai rankings, which is the oldest international rankings, they go back to 2003, the top 10 universities in those rankings have been the same every single year except in 2003, uh, University of Chicago was on the list. It, it was replaced by Yale the next year. So, you know, think about the S&P 500. Facebook didn't exist 
uh, back then. Google was still private. Um, and of course, you know, if you look at the sort of remainder of the top 10 list on the S&P 500, like it's changed around enormously. So what's going on? Science is like fantastic at replacing ideas. Some grad student or in some cases outsider can have a really good new idea and top all the you know, Nobel Prize winners and whatever. So it's, it's got a fantastic growth model for ideas. It's got a terrible growth model for institutional ideas. Every week in science and nature and these other journals, people will propose you know, new uh, approach. They'll say, you know, there should be, you know, postdocs should receive this type of training. There should be more outreach. There should be more of this. There should be more of that. These ideas will often grow a little bit locally, but they won't grow, you know, in sort of in this, the same sort of massive way that really good new institutional ideas uh, will uh, out in the commercial sector. Basically, I think there's some kind of sclerosis going on there. And what's needed is a way of overcoming that sclerosis. The best ideas that I know, well, there's a few. One is that really large emerging economies, China, India uh, in particular, um, they have a, just this amazing opportunity, which is they can do science in a different way. You know, it's unclear that they're going to take this opportunity. There's a lot of just copying going on. What does, you know, Caltech, what does Harvard, what are they doing well? How does the NSF work? But to the extent that people there are still setting up their system and are actually able to make courageous choices and do things in a different way, they have the opportunity to create a new system that really behaves in a different way. Um, sort of, you know, th there are many related ideas. Another one which I'm really quite fond of, uh, I really wonder, you know, at the long run impact of going to space in a serious way. If you set up a colony on Mars, well, initially, you know, it's going to be uh, small potatoes. It's really not going to do much. But over 10, 20, 50 years, it's going to start to grow. And there's going to be all these incredible pressures and stresses uh, in that environment. Again, they will have the opportunity to actually do something in a genuinely new and different way. Those are very long range kind of answers. They're terrible answers. In terms of short range, I mean, what you want is for people to be able to start their own university in a garage and because they have a better approach than Harvard, 10 years later, they've replaced Harvard. You know, we don't have that at the moment. There, there are so many ways that it could potentially happen. People will talk about things like Xerox Park or Bell Labs and go, oh my goodness, weren't they so great? If they were so great, why did the National Science Foundation not acquire them? They could have done that. Like uh, the NSF could have bought Park out. Um, it's not done, but so what? Uh, if you find things like that, uh, which look like they might be in danger of going away or being restructured, which is more or less what happened to, to Park, you know, it still exists, but it was certainly changed very substantially. You know, if it matters so much to the mission of some of these larger grant agencies, they can potentially... Uh, you know, amplify them, uh, pick out the best ideas, pick out the best institutional ideas and actually try and make them uh, better, try and help those institutional ideas actually take over the world. Yeah. So let's say the, the right people in India or China, you know, brought you on and your full-time work was establishing how uh, the institution should be designed for, for science to, to flourish. You mentioned a little bit, but what, what more would you do or how would you approach that opportunity? I mean, as you can probably tell from my answer, I'm certainly a fan of chaos, uh, trying many, many, many different ideas. 
Yeah, some, some things which are not currently done, which are sort of obvious things to do. Uh, there's a standard structure for the scientific group. You have a professor at the top, you have maybe a bunch of postdocs, you have a bunch of grad students. This is an obvious thing to vary in a whole bunch of ways uh, in terms of having, you know, just change the number of people of different kinds of, of seniority, change uh, the career structure in, in a variety of ways. I don't know, so many random things which one can can try. Make it compulsory to retire at the age of 35. What impact does that have? It will certainly change people's risk horizon. Provide things like, for example, tenure insurance. Um, that will also create uh, uh, sort of a change in, in, in people's risk horizon. You de-risk the, 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 the tenure process. I'm a fan of what Peter Thiel did with the Thiel Fellowship, it again, it changes who can be a scientist in a really interesting and fundamental way. They've, uh, my understanding is that they are no longer doing that in certainly the very aggressive way they, they were in the early days of the Till Fellowship. It's very interesting to talk to people who are scientists who went through that program and at the age of 19 or 20, they were all of a sudden told, Oh, you're responsible. Not, not you're not some peon in a lab who's doing what you're told. No, you're responsible for picking out a project, which is really incredibly important, and making that project go. And, of course, most of them, it didn't really work. You know, it, it, they, they were not successful. But it created this class of people who have very different expectations. They have very different life experience. And they have a very different model of what it is to do, science, than almost all traditional scientists. Yeah. And it's really interesting now to start to watch some of those people as they're, you know, in their mid twenties and they're doing interesting and different, uh, uh things. People like, uh, Laura Deming and Chris Olar and people like that. It's just very interesting to, to sort of watch them go and to realize that, you know, they're quite different from the conventional scientist. So there's, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm focusing there on one particular thing, sort of the question, who can be a scientist? And almost any change that you make um, will result in a different class of, of people. Another, another change t- type of class that I'm uh, kind of a fan of is the one that says, try and select for people who are enterprising might be right. I want something maybe a little bolder. Risk even, seeking. <laughs> risk seeking. Something that I've noticed, for example, a fair number of very good scientists they often will have some military service in their background. This doesn't really match the conventional model. Those people will have the stereotype, oh, you know, you've worked in the military, you're probably not very creative. Well, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case for these people. Uh, And in particular, they have a good understanding of what it means, you know, to undertake a risk. Risk, you know, might mean running towards machine gun fire, getting denied a grant, not so much. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. I think certainly, um, much of the selection process for scientists actually selects for people for whom the idea of not getting a grant, that's just a terrible thing, or I'm exaggerating. But the point is, there's a certain amount of, of risk aversion. Certainly the risk aversion associated to being denied tenure is just remarkable to watch. You know, a lot of people incredibly stressed about that and they really change their behavior. Uh, in ways that I think are, are very unproductive. So seeking out people who are not going to care about that and finding ways deliberately of filtering for them, uh, that's also going to, 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 you know, change people's risk profile and will change the type of work that they do. Something like uh, Craig Venter, for example, the famous genomicist. He was in, I believe it was Vietnam. Uh, he served there. 
and you know he does have this i think very interesting uh sort of profile of risks that he's taken during his career he's done a lot of very unconventional things i don't want to i don't know him personally i don't want to try and yeah. psychoanalyze him i'm uh, just using this as kind of an example of the right. kind of behavior that you might see without really imputing it right. and if you go back to the, the bottlenecks for a second is the problem that we don't have enough ex- expert attention or sort of enough interest from people who are experts or would be experts is it that they're working on the wrong things or things that are less likely to be fruitful or that they have the wrong incentives um and that doesn't lead to long term i think a lot of it is just centralization um you know, in most sciences, there's an enormous uh, desire on the part of institutions to receive grants. They can charge overhead on those grants. So people, you know, they put in their applications to the National Science Foundation or to the NIH. Those are centralized organizations. So there's kind of this funnel and people's ideas go through that, that funnel. I noticed years ago, I went back to back to a, the Australian Institute of Physics annual congress and to the Australian Mathematics kind of the equivalent thing. And I noticed that the mathematicians, despite me being a physicist, it was way more fun for me to go to the mathematics thing. And I think it was because there's money available to do physics in Australia and there's no money available to do mathematics. Uh, What was going on was that the physicists were all clustered around a few fashionable topics for which they could they could get large grants. Um, The mathematicians would all complain uh, that there was no money available to do anything, but they were vastly more spread out. Every mathematician I talked to, they had this amazing story about, oh, I worked on this and then I worked on this, and they were kind of all over the place. They were a very heterogeneous group, whereas the physicists who I talked to, often they could just say one phrase and I kind of could say, oh, your career was essentially this. Right? They were this very concentrated kind of a thing, and that I think is a result of sort of this coupling to the the uh, uh, grant agencies that there's just a terrible centralizing force yeah has it always been like that nope that, that's all been invented um you know uh, basically in the late 1940s uh, is when I, I forget the exact history but uh I, certainly the origin myth of the national science foundation goes back to the mid 1940s and vannevar bush and then the nih is about the same time so basically modern big science is Kind of a post World War Two uh, right. invention. And would your proposal for you know, there's one thing to start from scratch, but in terms of working with what we have now, it should be broken up into smaller organizations, more specialized organizations. Or? Yeah, I like that idea. I like the idea of a grant agency uh, production line. Um, if you take enough uh, money, you can set up essentially kind of a, a conveyor belt or a production line for for grant agencies, where you're just spitting one out um, yeah. each each year. Uh, if they're all governed uh, very differently, you will certainly start to get some interesting kinds of of diversity. Um, there's still no selection pressure. Yeah, you, know, you want things to die. You want bad things to die. You want good things to get larger. I don't really understand how to do that on short timescales. Over long timescales, I think it's not so it's not so difficult to see. You know, if the quality of an, a society's ideas determines how well it does, well, if you know the Martians can figure out how to do science in a much, much, much more effective way, uh, that may give them some interesting long-term advantages. That sounds ridiculous, of course, when I say that. Almost as ridiculous as saying, you know, in the 1600s, if the Americans can figure out how to do science really well, they, you know, they're going to take over from Europe. Well, you know, it worked out pretty well. Um, what does the venture capital for science look like? Are there the part that's not sort of for-profit for startups? 
I mean, one of them you already mentioned, which is just having a, you know, a much larger number of funders. One thing which I know some venture firms do, which I, I think is good uh, and would work well in science if it was more widely used, is doing things like uh, using golden ticket funding where one reviewer can just say, yep, I love that idea. It's going to be funded. I don't care what the other reviewers say. There's actually the, the New Zealand Health Research Council has started experimenting with randomized allocation of funding. So they do sort of a basic sanity check on applications. You know, is this work, you know, they're not proposing a perpetual motion machine. You know, is it potentially transformative? And if that's the case, then it just gets put in a pool and they apparently literally use a random number generator uh, to pick who gets funded. So those kinds of ideas, an idea I particularly like is um, very similar to what grant agencies currently do. They tend to, they receive an application, they send it out to reviewers. The reviewers often will provide a score. The standard thing to do is, you know, you look at kind of the average or something of the, the scores. I'd much prefer if they looked at, at least in some cases, for some subset of the grants, the variance of the scores. You want things that some people absolutely love and some things people absolutely hate. You know, on average, this is probably, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, if this was substantially worse as an approach. But you don't care about the average in scientific research, much as in venture. You care about the tail. This might already exist, but is there a role for something like a Patreon or a Kickstarter for? Yeah, people have tried it. You have this interesting problem. Patreon or Kickstarter, a lot of that's about marketing. A lot of that's about your ability to explain yourself to a large audience. For some types of science, that's probably fine. If you're, you know, a world famous mathematician, if you're a Terry Tao or somebody like this, and you want to attack a famous problem, the Riemann hypothesis, you can probably, you know, get some nice funding together through yeah. Patreon. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's good as, I guess, a small partial solution it typically is not going to work. I mean, in the, in, excuse me, that's, it's not that necessary because he's going to be able to get the funding anyway, yeah. but it's an interesting thing to think about it's not necessarily going to do a great job for the problem that somebody is currently struggling to articulate and which doesn't have any public at all, but which in 40 years time is going to turn out to be the most important thing that was, that was done at the time. Turing couldn't have run a Patreon in 1930, 1936, not just for the obvious reason, but even if it had existed, uh, uh, it, it would have just seemed strange. This is, this might be a very dumb idea, but in terms of generating sort of interest, mass interest, or maybe mass interest is, is not what you care about. Maybe it's more expert interest. Is there a role for something like esports for science or like <laughs> sh- shark tank for science? <laughs> Some sort of science as entertainment or science as sport. The real world for science. I'm just kidding. But sort of like, to what extent would that be helpful, if at all? <laughs> if at all doable? <laughs> It's interesting to think about. MathWorks, uh, who make MATLAB, ran a programming competition. It has a little bit of this flavor. It's sort of done in uh, the open in a truly remarkable way. All the submissions are scored instantaneously or within a few seconds. And then the code is shared publicly and the, and it's, and the score is put on the leaderboard. Uh, so it becomes 
not quite a spectator sport, but but people are just coming in and stealing each other's code and repurposing it and improving it and whatever. It's quite a, quite a frenzy when they were doing it. They haven't done it in a few years. There actually was an instance that was a little bit like this. That's right. It was somebody a few years ago claimed to have proved that P is not equal to NP, I think it was. So this famous, very famous problem in mathematics and computer science And a couple of notable mathematicians and computer scientists were inclined to take this seriously. And a very well-known computer scientist, uh, Richard Lipton, uh, started blogging about it. And then they actually started a collaborative project to pull apart the paper that was claiming this. So my connection uh, is that, in fact, I was running – I host the wiki that they were using to do a lot of the collaboration – and the, the wiki was just getting absolutely hammered uh, as hundreds of thousands of people were checking in. Um, I guess because there was a fair bit of a sort of public interest, there are a lot of articles in the mass media, um, and apparently people were interested to come along and, and sort of follow along. I don't know, people have this really interesting relationship to that. There's a, the Perimeter Institute is a theoretical physics institute outside Toronto where I used to be faculty. And they're in this great public lecture series they have people like roger penrose and lenny suskind and a whole bunch of very well-known physicists come and give talks and you know there are public talks they're just talks for people in the town and sometimes they're really pretty good uh, but sometimes they're just incomprehensible i think they're incomprehensible sometimes if you're a theoretical physicist never mind for a member of the, the public and yet it's really interesting uh even sometimes the incomprehensible ones that people really enjoy because even though you don't understand the details, you understand like some of what the problem is. And it'll be a person thinking about the origin of the universe and the eventual fate of the universe and uh, these kinds of questions. And they're really big questions, which people enjoy being having some kind of contact with, even if they can't necessarily understand, you know, I don't know, Penrose doing twist door diagrams or something like that in front of them. Uh, that's something nice. And I, I guess, I don't know, a lot of people don't like that type of science. They worry about the celebritization of science or something. I'm probably a little bit more, uh, I like, I like the idea. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you think it sort of, um, makes it less pure or something? I think actually a lot of it is just worrying about the effect that it will have on things like hiring decisions. You know, it is certainly the case that at a lot of places, uh, you know, having some articles in the New York times covering your work probably helps you, yeah, your case substantially, and often, yeah, people are very ambivalent about that because often, you know, it's for incredibly spurious scientific reasons. I mean, sometimes actually, it's for anti-scientific reasons. Like, it's very easy to you know write rewrite an abstract often in such a way that it's much more likely to get picked up by the New York Times, but it's actually more misleading. So, you know, that just ticks people off for entirely understandable reasons. I don't know. What was it? That's right. There was a recent paper about how, you know, a group had claimed to reverse time in their experiment. They'd done nothing of the sort. It was absolute garbage. It was clearly just, you know, an attempt to get a whole bunch of press coverage for for their work. Uh, so that kind of thing is it's way too easy to do. It has a lot of impact, though, on uh, on all sorts of decisions. So that's, I think, why a lot of people bugged by it. Speaking of institutions for a second, um, is the reason why it's so hard for Harvard or any of these other institutions to be replaced by a new upstart, is it largely just because the government makes it very difficult to start a, uni- a registered university or are there other 
reasons. It's not that hard to start a registered university. I'm disinclined to believe that. There's a lot of research universities around. It's amazing that there's not more shuffling at the top. That suggests that something else is, is going on. To some extent, you know, like a lot of the way the money allocation is being done is it's being done by people who are closely connected to those institutions. So, you know, you imagine that essentially the, you know, C star O's of, of all the, you know, S&P 500, the, the, the 10 largest, you know, S&P 500 companies in 2003 had gotten together and essentially were in charge of, you know, allocating capital for the next 20 years. Well, it wouldn't have changed that much. Uh, and I think, that's an oversimplification of what's going on, yeah. uh, but there is certainly some truth to 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 that being the case. Basically, science is self-governing to a remarkable extent. Right. Um, this has many benefits, but it also has some real disadvantages, and I think yeah. that sort of sclerosis is one of the disadvantages. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, in some sense, Amazon, Apple, Facebook—I mean, they are in charge of uh, allocating all their all their capital, and yet still, in ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, there will be something that disrupts them. Yeah, they're coupled to the market, right, in some really interesting way. There's no coupling to, or there's a very, a much weaker coupling to the market in this case. I'm not, I wouldn't argue that it should be coupled, uh, to the market. I think that's a disastrous idea for a lot of reasons, but you need some external selection pressure. In principle, nature provides that, right? And it, and at the level of individual scientists, nature is absolutely brutal on people's ideas. You know, you can work on something for 10 years and if it's a bad idea, good luck. You know, you, right. you, you, you know, uh, you, you can't fool nature. You can't even fool nature as easily as you can fool the market at the institutional level. Yeah. It's a, it's a worry. What's the, uh, the role or opportunity for the, uh, the gentleman scientist, the independent scientist? Uh, I think that they've been enabled enormously by the internet and the fact that yeah, most papers now are available somewhere online. It's also a lot easier to find peers. I don't have any data, so I don't know whether or not it's true, but I pretty strongly suspect that, uh, that over the last 20 years, we've gone from that being relatively unimportant to being much more important than it used yeah. to be. There's this, what is it, the Ronan Institute, and there's a few other sort of essentially affiliations of independent scholars. There's things like a lot of grant agencies you can't apply for a grant unless you have some organization uh, to act as the administering organization. So these places like this Ronan Institute, they, they're sort of set up to, to do that. I think what's good about it is the type of person who's going to set themselves up like that, probably on average, they're substantially more likely to be a crank. They're also more likely to be in this, 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 you know, tiny little tail yeah. um, of disproportionate right. uh, contributors. A lot of very good scientists uh, really are highly disagreeable people. Uh, not that surprising, but it's true. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, they will sometimes have difficulty uh, surviving in a conventional right. institutional environment. Even more so than entrepreneurs, right? Like, I feel like entrepreneurs, you have to have some level of agreeableness. Like, you have sort of this balance of like, you have this weird idea, yeah, you have to sell people on it all the time. <laughs> you still have to convince, yeah. I mean, typically 10 or 100 or 1,000 yeah. people to work for you yeah. um, without, you know, quitting after a week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can be a very disagreeable scientist and just work in your <laughs> basement. <laughs> and and some do. Yeah. You know, is, speaking of disagreeableness, I'm no John Stuart Mill scholar, a very vague understanding of, but of, uh, of his work, but my, my understanding of, uh, of On Liberty, I think there's a chapter 
or segment where it talks about experiments and living, where he talks about it, it shouldn't, it's not just imperative that it be, you know, legal to be yourself basically and do, you know, follow your curiosities, but also sort of morally encouraged that people explore their sort of trying to defense for being weird <laughs> and that we all explore, uh, we all benefit from collective, from people experimenting individually and in, in public so that people can see and learn from it. And, and that should be sought out. And he was really concerned about conformity. And I, I think that you and, and Patrick are, are interested in that idea of encouraging people to, uh, be experiments and creating society that, and a culture that encourages that being weird, basically. For, how do we do that? <laughs> the silver lining of the Bay Area housing crisis has been, I think, the emergence of all these group houses, which often provide some encouragement for people to do unusual things. I think it's pretty rare that people are so independent that they do their weird thing entirely on their own. It seems to be more common that they do very unusual things with the support of a small group around them. And so that seems certainly healthy from the point of view of generating diversity and, you know, different ways of living. I mean, there's so much intentional living in this area. And very often, you know, it's easy to point at so many of those experiments and say, well, that was a disaster and that didn't work and that didn't work and that didn't work. But of course, uh, you, know, you need a lot of things that don't work to find interesting yeah. things that 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 do the most powerful thing i know to do is to tell people that they're doing good which sounds strange but if somebody is doing something unusual they very often sometimes they'll be getting a lot of positive reinforcement in which case it's fine but very often not only are they not being told it's good they're not being told it in a perceptive truly valuing way so if if you really, truly like the work or at least the direction it's going in, sort of the more specific you are. And actually, Nikki's a good example. Uh, Nikki Case, who I mentioned before, Nikki does these very unusual, I don't know what to call them, explorable explanations, I guess is what Nikki calls them. And they're just these sort of remarkable experiments and you want to, Say that those things are, I don't know what they, what they're for or what they mean over the, the long term, but I'm very glad that somebody's doing that kind of experimentation, particularly when it's outside sort of traditional values. This is not a basis for a startup. It's not a basis for a scientific research project. It doesn't sit within any of our existing institutions. That's when it kind of matters. You know, the NSF is never going to fund this. A VC is never going to fund this. It's just odd. And so you, you want to help that person and you can do that by connecting them to other people who might be able to help fund them or do things like that but i think it's less important than actually them having the belief that what they're doing matters yeah. anyway especially when they're if they're hearing nothing otherwise or in fact that, that it doesn't matter uh, otherwise so countering that there's, there's, i think there's a related thing which is i think there's this sort of enormous complement deficit in the world I guess my sort of working theory is that almost everybody's friends know a whole lot of really good things about them that the person doesn't know about themselves. Yeah. And it's just obvious, right. you know, oh, you know, such and such is, you know, so kind and thoughtful in these particular ways or da, 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 da. And it's totally obvious to all or many of their friends. And yet the person themselves doesn't realize it. And what, 
you know, it would just totally make their day, week, month, year to be told even once. I don't know. I'd love to understand how to, you know, how do you actually, how do you find out those things and sort of publicly service them a little bit more yeah. uh, routinely? I keep asking my friends for compliments, but they, <laughs> they won't give them. It's not the right, there's something, I don't know, there's something sort of weird about like, like on, why Rachel. is that the case? Why is that the case? Yeah. Yeah. And what you're talking about group housing, Patrick has tweeted this idea that we sh- we shouldn't just study biographies, but we should also study sort group biographies um, and how people come up together. How, how do you uh, think about that idea and what, why is that interesting to you? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to think about, you know, just the basic question, why, why care about biographies of individuals at all? To some extent, it's just, you know, I think it's this kind of validation that we were talking about before, you know, oh, it's possible to live in this way. Oh, it's possible to live in that way. Right. You sort of get these interesting models that you just didn't realize it was possible to do. And then, you know, you have the obvious sort of answer, I guess, to your, your question. You look at something like, I don't know, Bloomsbury is a good example. Um, so this group that included Virginia Woolf, John Maynard Keynes, Lytton Strachey, and a whole bunch of others, Duncan Grant, all the things that they did together that were just sort of interesting ways of, of being. They ran this essentially, I don't know, kind of communal living arrangement in London in, what was it, I think the 1920s which was probably pretty unusual, certainly at the time. Um, but they do things like, for example, uh, they brought, I think they brought the first exhibition of Cubist art to uh, England. Uh, they ran a variety of really great pranks, uh, actually, on the, uh, on the British government, essentially. Uh, and just reading about those kinds of things, it's just interesting to see that, you know, groups of people can, can do these kinds of things. They opened a theatre. These are not necessarily things that you expect, say, a novelist or an economist or whatever to do. Um, so again, it's just, I guess it's just kind of mind expanding. What would need to be true for us? Like, how would we know if we're not in a slowdown anymore as it relates to the rate of scientific innovation? Like, uh, Werner Vinge, who I think first popularized the science fiction author, Werner Vinge, who popularized the notion of a singularity, I heard him asked, you know, what would be a sign of the emergence of superintelligence? And he said, well, you know, a sign of a very rapid takeoff might be that you would wake up one morning and there would be a mountain range out the back that hadn't been there the previous day. So there'd be certain, if things sped up enough, there might be some really remarkable changes. People who worry a lot about artificial and general intelligence, I think, tend to, or they, they, they worry about that kind of thing or think about a very dramatic sort of very rapid changes sort of the broader answer <laughs> such a hard such a retrospective thing you know that's part of what the, you know i think a big part of the problem with doing science and with designing institutions to do science is that the feedback loops are just so darn long you know albert einstein introduced the cosmological constant uh, modification of general relativity in i think 1916 or 1917 Ten years later, he decided that it had been a terrible mistake. He called it his greatest error. And then 70 years after that, uh, Brian Schmidt and Sol Perlmutter and Adam Rees discovered that, no, actually, the cosmological constant was correct, and they won a Nobel Prize for proving this. So Einstein you know, took 10 years to decide he'd made a huge mistake, and then it took another 70 years to figure out that, no, actually, it was really, really brilliant thing to have to have done. So all, you know, if you want to improve something, you want these really feedback, really rapid feedback loops. They are really hard to, to get in science. And that's one of the things that makes judging this kind of thing very difficult. A discovery, 
A good example. A lot of people are talking about CRISPR at the moment, you know, this ability to essentially program uh, genetic material uh, really with very high precision. And my understanding is that, in fact, much of the work on CRISPR, the early work on CRISPR, was done by yogurt companies for what seemed like very banal uh, industrial applications, which, you know, they basically, they wanted to make their vats less likely to go off and they were kind of doing all this stuff. That work would have seemed probably very uninteresting to most people uh, at the time. It turns out that it laid the foundation for, you know, this incredible technology now. So it doesn't, it wouldn't have looked very important then, but in fact, it was incredibly important. I'm basically, I'm not really answering your question. I'm saying why the, the question is so damned hard to, to yeah. answer. Patrick and I, you know, that's why, we, you know, we looked over a baseline of a hundred odd years, um, partially for this, yeah. this reason. And it was very retrospective. You know, it's just difficult to say anything from the last five or 10 years. It's part of the reason why something like the New York Times is such a sort of unreliable guide to, yeah. to science. You can say what's fashionable and what's easy to explain and what's pretty, but it's often very hard to say what's deep. Yeah. Uh, partially, it's not just that it's hard for the New York Times, it's hard for the individual scientist to right. say what matters. And you said one of the biggest bottlenecks is lack of expert attention. I think that that's certainly a, you know, it's often a scarcity. I don't, I don't think that I'm, I wouldn't necessarily say I think that that's the chief scarcity. You know, expert attention is really great for solving well-defined problems. It seems to me anyway that, you know, what's really uh, scarce is probably more the well-defined problems. Yeah. And sort of grand, over, well, large narratives that generate lots of good problems and which, you know, which have some chance of, of, of being solved. There's this one of the most common responses to our article, and we certainly thought about it a lot, uh, was to say, "Oh, you know, you're just pointing out that all the low-hanging fruit have been 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 taken." No, actually, science doesn't work like that. You get these new fields of science that emerge out of old fields, but they create all these new low-hanging fruit. You know, the theory of computation emerged out of mathematics. But all of a sudden, it was just obvious to people that there were all these amazing simple questions which uh, they could ask much simpler than it would have appeared. You know, it, it came out of came out of logic and the foundations of mathematics, and a lot of those problems look really hard and incredibly esoteric. Um, so you do have this, you know, sort of very strange the phenomenon of field production in science is, I think, one of the most interesting understudied things that, that that we have like where do new fields come from what controls their rate of production can we just create new fields on demand is there some kind of process that we can go through um, is it you know completely outside our control what is what is a new field all those kinds of questions are things which i think are very badly understood and just utterly fascinating peter T if i if i understand his uh public explanation for the the economic slowdown to extend or productivity to extend exists. I think it's something along the lines of collective cultural lowering of ambition. Um, in some sense, I, I think you, you, he often brings up how Nixon was trying to cure cancer and you know, we were sending people to the moon and, uh, there was just sort of this, um, bigger, bolder, more ambitious sort of collective agenda that, uh, that you, you couldn't imagine today. And I don't know if he gives re the reasons for that. Has that happened in science too? Or are we not as ambitious as we used to be? Or There's an interesting force, which is the force of specialization. If you increase the number of people in a field, um, you know, there's a natural following pressure to specialize more. 
So that would be a force that would work in that kind of, or not would be, it is a force that works in that kind of way. On the other hand, it's not obvious to me that there's not just as many really extraordinarily brilliant people who you know, are extremely ambitious to solve very large problems. Yeah, I don't really buy it. It's very interesting. It's particularly interesting, I think, to talk if you go and find people like uh, Hertz Fellows or you know people who graduate first or near first in their class at top top universities. Yeah, th- those people are sort of all over the place, but very often they're really extraordinary. And sometimes you get the sense that they're following the, the careers that follow. Some, you know, sometimes they disappoint the people themselves a little bit. It can be hard. You know, there's a sort of a matching problem. I mean, I think everybody wants to find, you know, the work that they're suited for in, in some sense. And if you're very ambitious, uh, and very talented, you want to find great problems that you can apply yourself to and actually make some, you know, some real progress on solving that matching problem is that's a great, I mean, that's just a fantastic problem. Um, I think it's, it's actually one of the reasons why I got interested in, in Y Combinator many, many, well, just as it was getting started, it seemed as though they were doing a good, you know, they were, they were increasing the efficiency with which this matching was, was taking place. Uh, any mechanism which can increase that efficiency and is super interesting. Co-founders or matching startups to capital, or I, I mean, taking in many cases, you know, twenty-one-year-olds who are ambitious but didn't have a whole lot of direction, didn't know what they wanted to do, and basically giving them sort of legitimacy and saying, "Look, it's actually not that hard. Right. You know, you can go and attack this enormous problem, yeah. and you know, here we'll give you a whole bunch of advice and a whole bunch of help, and you know, it turns into Airbnb, right?" What's the closest thing to that for research today? I mean, there's certainly a lot of sort of picking of winners at all different stages. In some cases, there's sort of an ambivalent type. So there's things like the, the mathematics Olympiads in high schools. That's an extraordinary experience for those people. They often later have some problems. Although it's a wonderful formative experience and very good in many ways, it's not the same as doing mathematics. It's not the same as doing research uh, in any field. And so there may be some kind of, you know, I'm talking to many people who got like gold medals or whatever at at those Olympiads. Um, They sometimes have some, some difficulty making that transition to put it mildly. But, you know, that kind of thing is repeated over and over. I mentioned the Hertz Fellows before. Um, there's tons of programs like that. The Harvard Junior Fellows, which is a program that's been copied by many other universities. All these things basically, you know, they pick people out. They try and give them sort of special working conditions and cultivate them a little bit that way. I think very often they don't go far enough, not really through any fault of their own, but just because it's very hard Something I do feel strongly is that you know, any sort of homogenizing force is it's usually pretty bad. You want strong local cultures which are different in in, in some way. So, you know, it's great to go and be, you know, part of the Hertz Fellowship. But if ultimately you need to come back and get NSF funding or whatever, NIH funding, that's really going to drive a lot of, you know, that's a, this sort of enormous systemic homogenizing force, which, yeah. Overall, I think it's, it's very suboptimal. It's like, it's, imagine there was just, you know, five VC firms. It'd be terrible. You know, it really just would not be good. That's, that's kind of what it is. You yeah. know, just combine all of the VCs into yeah. five big ones. Right. Twitter would certainly be less interesting. Please. 
Yeah, I mean, Twitter has its own problems in this sort of homogenizing way, I think. Like, it does. It's great as a blender, but it also actually homogenizes uh, people. I think it's, it's, it's always interesting when you find people who, like, really seek out unusual corners of, yeah. uh, of Twitter. I want to go back to something you said earlier about uh, reproducing social science. Some people have, I guess, predominantly Austrian economists have sort of this uh, epistemological view that physics or uh, and some other sciences you could sort of deductive in a way that you can observe phenomena and then sort of deduce and make general patterns from from what happened but uh or draw general patterns but for things like economics or social theory or social science uh you can't really do that as much and you need to have more of a first principles approach what's your sort of view on that uh epistemological idea okay let me see if i understand the question so no, it's unclear that we're ever going to be all that good at the social sciences by the by the standards of the physical sciences, uh, which is not to say that we won't find different standards which are you know at least as interesting. Um, it seems as though we're not there yet. You know, all sorts of questions become sort of seem like bad questions. You know, in physics, you know, you get this enormous ability to do inference about a particle's behavior. Think, I don't know, things like the Large Hadron Collider, you know, people don't appreciate just how much. It, I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling how they do the inference of of what particles were produced because they don't see the particles directly. They see, you know, essentially children of children of children of children of children of those particles. They, they, they there's sort of this just amazing debris. It's like dropping a car engine on concrete from orbit and then you know figuring out something about it from the scattered remains. Um, it's really a remarkable experiment. Um, so I don't think that kind of control and inference may never be possible in the social sciences. Are there other questions which one can ask, uh, which are just as interesting? I don't know. So it can end up, you know, a little bit like the relationship between fluid dynamics and weather and climate, where you have... You, know, you understand the detailed dynamics incredibly well. Doesn't mean you can really predict very much, but you can understand the long term. That seems plausibly the case. I don't know, can you end up with Harry Selton's kind of psychohistory? Uh, it doesn't, I mean, it's not obvious that that's not going to be possible. Right. I, know, I believe it was John von Neumann you know, who believed that really the essential problem in, in economics and, and other social sciences was, you know, it was lack of appropriate mathematical tools. Uh, people now might say, well, maybe actually what you need is just better observational data. When people say things like, we've been having romantic relationships for a long time, humans have, and yet there's very little science on that, is that sort of a silly thing to say? Or is there sort of some truth there, or <laughs> wisdom there, I guess, in terms of like, why don't we know that much about them? Or is that the wrong, like, do we in fact know a lot? I, I mean, there's definitely this, this, I think, really interesting thing about a field's collective standards. So I, I, I read a few chemistry papers just by chance, sort of over, that were sort of spread out over the 20th century. It was really striking to realize that the papers from the earlier 20th century had much lower standards than papers, uh, from, from later on. They probably would have, you know, they wouldn't have been publishable later on. And so I, I, I was sort of think in terms of this sort of ratchet in fields, which is fields almost always start out with incredibly low standards. They're basically, they're not much different from the standards you just use in everyday life. Why did such and such a person not show up to such and such a thing? Well, you make a little guess and 
you probably go with it, right? Because that seemed pretty plausible. And, and, you know, you sort of, sciences tend to start that way. And then as they gradually develop better, you know, sort of heuristic principles, better theories, you know, hopefully the standards start to rise. It's connected. You know, you use the theories to validate the sort of later experiments. And this process can kind of, you know, go backwards and forwards for long enough. You can end up with a situation like in the Large Hadron Collider or the gravitational wave detection experiments where, you know, all the validation and all the, you know, it's being done using these astoundingly successful theories. If those theories are wrong, then in fact, the interpretation of the experiment is completely wrong. Uh, in the case of the social sciences and you know, understanding romance, like, you know, it seems like the famous OkCupid okay blog posts on, on, on that were kind of, you know, in many ways, not far away from, from state of the art. So that's a very low level, uh, I guess, though. I mean, it's like anything. I love the fact, you know, you can find scientists studying almost anything. And very often it's just at, at sort of at the start. Um, you know, so they've got terrible standards because there's no theory with which to say even what it would mean to do a good experiment. But you kind of, you know, fool around. People do for decades and gradually things get better. Um, and if you keep at it for long enough, uh, it actually turns into this, you know, at some point people are going to be able to say super interesting, probably pretty bizarre things about romance. Yeah. And it's just interesting that it's, it's not this sort of obscure thing. It's sort of like the central question for so many people. That's a distorting force, right? Yeah, yeah. Like anything which people are super interested in, it becomes much harder to do science yeah. on. If people don't care that much about something, like it's relatively easy to do, to do science. You know, very few people have strong emotional response to whether or not the Higgs boson exists. But, you know, sure as hell people care about, I mean, you see this with, uh, you know, vaccines, right? Yeah. Vaccine denialism, um, is partially caused by the fact that right. people care so much about their kids, which yeah. is an obviously entirely laudable. Yeah. But then it leads to the these weird distortions where right. they get something in their head. And- what can we learn about science from doing things like reading fiction, playing video games, watching NBA basketball? <laughs> There's some really strange connection between fiction and science. You know, both are let's play pretend. Mm-hmm. You know, once upon a time is not that different from writing down a set of equations. You know, in both cases, you want to set up a premise and then see what on earth happens. Another really weird connection between stories and science is that, you know, a way in which a story is much more like science is that there's no inessential elements. Um, a friend of mine who's a science fiction writer uh, once told me that he really needs to understand, like, you know, when he puts a word in a sentence, he understands the relationship between the word, the sentence, the paragraph, the page, the chapter, the whole book. Like there's a really well-defined relationship. And that's true in scientific theories as well. Like there's no wasted motion. There's no wasted elements. Whereas in, in everyday life, for many people, like a lot of what you do, it's not really connected to some grand overarching narrative. Some people have a grand overarching narrative of their, their life, but I think for most people, it's often, you know, it's a little bit more, you just go to the bar with some friends because that's what you do and whatever. You're not thinking about whether or not it, you know, sort of affects this grand overarching narrative. So in that sense, I think stories are actually kind of similar to, to scientific theories. And I just find that fascinating. Like what, why do we, why do we care? Why is that true? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I don't have a good answer. There's got to be some biological explanation, but uh, I have no idea what it is. Any things we should point our listeners to? Oh, yeah. So with uh, Andy Matushak, uh, I'm uh, working on this 
book about quantum mechanics, quantum computing, quantum.country. We're about to release a new essay which explains how a quantum algorithm works, the quantum search algorithm, and the book embeds uh, spaced repetition. So basically the promise the medium makes is that uh, with essentially no effort, you'll remember the entire content rather than forgetting it, which I think is what most people find happens with most things they read. Certainly it's what I find happens with most things I read. Totally. And I'd also plug uh, your your book that you wrote many years ago, Reinventing Discovery, as well as uh, your blog. Thank you for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 